Oh, hello, Kevin here with another episode of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. The topic for today is true crime, specifically organized crime. James Joseph Whitey Bulger is one of the most infamous organized crime leaders in modern American history. As head of Boston's Winter Hill Gang, Bulger would eventually earn a place at number one on the FBI's most wanted list. Bulger went on the run in 1994 and became a ghost for the law enforcement agencies tasked with trying to find him. Today I am joined by best-selling authors Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge to talk about their new book, Hunting Whitey, the inside story of the capture and killing of America's most wanted crime boss. Casey and Dave both have backgrounds in journalism and have developed a dynamic partnership writing about topics related to the Boston area. In today's true crime episode, the three of us discuss Whitey Bulger's criminal career, his 16 years spent as a fugitive, and the breaks in the case that ultimately led to Bulger's arrest in 2011. Before we dig into today's topic, I just wanted to give a shout out to those of you who've given some great reviews on Apple Podcasts. Uh, saw a couple more on there today. Um, I appreciate uh, everyone who goes on and offers a rating and review. Those are super helpful in um, increasing the show's rankings and getting word out about the podcast. Um, I also want to say thank you to everyone who's been following the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, We just recently passed 900 followers on Twitter, which I never thought would ever happen. So thank you to everyone who's following the show, enjoying it, uh, and keeping in touch. Of course, if you want to follow the show and you're not already, uh, you can find it on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, all at CMTU History. I'm on there about every day and would love to hear from you. All right, without further ado, Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Bringing you strange but true things from the past. It's not the average history that you learned in school. We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools. And stories that are just too crazy to believe. The stranger than fiction and super unique. Casey Sherman, Dave Wedge, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Very glad to have you two gentlemen with me. Um, From what I understand, you guys are a writing team. You've uh, been doing this uh, for a while together. Could you tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you got connected and the work you've done? Sure. Well, uh, this is Casey here, and uh, I've uh, been partnered with Dave now for, I think, going on five to six years. Uh, uh, Hunting Whitey is my 13th book. Uh, I've been writing uh, nonfiction, uh, true crime books and other adventure stories since the early 2000s. I wrote a book called The Finest Hours, which became a uh, big Disney movie in 2016, starring uh, Chris Pine and Casey Affleck. And then uh, Dave and I got together for a book called Boston Strong, which was the uh, uh, preeminent uh, book written about the aftermath of the Boston Marathon bombings. And that was uh, later turned into the film Patriot's Day with Mark Wahlberg. I have a uh, journalism background, as uh, Dave does. I went to BU Journalism School and was a a TV producer uh, for about uh, 15 to 20 years before I began writing almost full time. Yeah, so I I have a journalism background. As Casey said, I was a reporter at the Boston Herald uh, for 14 years, and that's how me and Casey 
uh, first met was uh, actually when he wrote his first book about uh, the Boston Strangler, where uh, Casey's don't want to speak for him, but Casey's aunt was the uh, last victim of the Boston Strangler. And he wrote a book about that. And I actually wrote a story about it for the Boston Herald. So that's kind of how we first met. And then we stayed friend, friends over the years. And when the Boston Marathon uh, bombings occurred, I was uh, kind of the lead reporter on that for the Boston Herald. So uh, after that whole, you know, calamity ended, uh, Casey and I reconnected and we decided to work together and, and do the book. And we've been uh, writing together ever since. We've, uh, we've now done uh, four books together. Uh, the most recent one is Hunting Whitey, which, uh, which we just put out. All right. And, and a lot of your books have a, you know, a Boston centered theme and uh, Whitey uh, Bulger is a, is a Boston, very well-known Boston mobster. Uh, if you guys could, for anyone who's not familiar with the man, could you tell us a little bit about James Whitey Bulger's, uh, his background and his criminal career? Sure. You know, James Whitey Bulger is really kind of the white whale of all Boston crime stories. But for our national audience, he's uh, probably the most infamous uh, gangland uh, leader since Al Capone. Uh, Whitey Bulger was the head of a, uh, an Irish gang called the Winter Hill Gang in Boston and really grew to power after getting out of Alcatraz uh, Federal Prison in San Francisco in the late 60s. He's back on the streets in South Boston, which is an Irish neighborhood that's been immortalized on film, much uh, you know, involved with a lot of the Whitey Bulger lore over the uh, past few years. And as he's committing crimes and building his gang, he's also uh, cooperating uh, under uh, cover with the FBI. And uh, Bulger was a top echelon informant with the Bureau for decades. And that uh, information was never revealed uh, to the public and to the, to the media until Whitey Bulger escaped uh, oncoming indictments in the winter of 1994, and he vanished for 16 years. Now, while he was operating in South Boston, what kind of mythos did he create about himself? Yeah, so Bulger was a stone cold killer, um, but he really did create this aura of being this kind of benevolent, noble gangster who protected his neighborhood. Um, the biggest myth really being that he kept drugs out of South Boston, which uh, nothing could have been further from the truth. He was um, in charge of all the rackets in, in Boston and beyond, really, uh, you know, prostitution, guns extortion, loan sharking, bookmaking, and drug dealing. Um, and, you know, but he did uh, uh, run his neighborhood in a way that he endeared himself to the local people through, you know, giving them gifts, you know, handing out turkeys at the local community events. Um, one thing that he was very famous for was um, when uh, kids or guys that worked for him went to jail, he would put money in their prison canteen to help them out and uh, also help out their families by giving them cash. And that kind of bought their silence. But really, it, as it turned out later in his life, that a lot of those people wound up in jail directly because of um, information that Whitey provided when he was ratting on them to the uh, FBI. So he kind of used people in his own neighborhood for his own gain. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, he was, uh, I mean, one of the most manipulative uh, uh, criminals that you could ever come across. He used... Uh, you know, agents in the FBI. He used people um, within his own community. He used members of his own family, uh, uh, you know, to, to get ahead as a criminal. Now, what about his personal life? What, what kind of personal life did he keep? 
Well, Bulger uh, was, uh, uh, he had basically, you know, two girlfriends uh, or actually three girlfriends over the course of his, uh, his adult life. And uh, the first woman that he was with, he had a child with uh, who died at six years old. And Bulger always blamed himself and blamed some of the uh, um, uh, experiments that Bulger had uh, participated in while he was a federal prisoner. Bulger uh, was part of a government program uh, uh, for LSD experiments. That was a, a secret CIA funded program. But in Bulger's mind, uh, doctors were looking for a cure for schizophrenia and he was, could get that, uh, some time taken off was, his, uh, his sentence. Was that the MK Ultra program? That was the MK Ultra program. Absolutely. And, uh, and he uh, took LSD hits for months at a time. And you can imagine a guy that's kind of breaking bad anyway. Now you kind of make him the Incredible Hulk, if you will. And uh, his child was born with some uh, uh, difficulties and some abnormalities and ultimately uh, succumbed uh, to a, a disease called Rye syndrome. And Bulger, uh, you know, believed it was because of the toxins that he had uh, ingested into his own body and his own bloodstream for all those years. Um, he then had a, uh, another girlfriend, Teresa Stanley, who was really his common-law wife. <laughs> Teresa had a, a, a young family kids and Bulger would be there every night for dinner, making sure the kids did their homework and, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of ran the straight and narrow, if you will. But when Bulger went on the run, he uh, um, originally went on the run with Teresa Stanley, his common law wife, but she was not cut out to be a fugitive. And Bulger had a mistress waiting in the wings named Catherine Gray, whose only goal in life was to be loved by Whitey Bulger. So he drops off Teresa Stanley, he picks up Catherine Gregg, and uh, they leave together for uh, 16 years uh, of, you know, kind of a uh, crisscrossed um, country odyssey uh, trying to keep under the radar uh, of law enforcement. So a, a big part of your book deals with how he became, um, you, you guys call him, he becomes a ghost story, essentially. Uh, what was life like for him on the run? So Bulger uh, was a student of crime, and um, he liked to consider himself as having a Ph.D. because of his time at Alcatraz. And Alcatraz was his Harvard, he would tell people. Um, he was also a student of how to be a fugitive. So he built up uh, this, this arsenal of information and materials um, to, to, get a, to, to become a fugitive. He was really planning for it his entire life because he knew at some point that there was going to be a major case against him. Um, he had paid off uh, law enforcement to give him information, and ultimately they gave him the information that allowed him to get the jump to go on the run. Um, and when he did that, he had uh, a lot of access to cash, and he had a lot of fake identities. And he was great at creating new identities and obtaining them. And when he ultimately was captured uh, in 2011, he had over $800,000 in cash stashed in the, in the house where they were living as well as books on how to be a wow. fugitive um how to how to obtain fake identities how to create fake ids and things like that so um but they lived a pretty unassuming life as like a retired couple and they would pull into these small towns such as grand isle louisiana and befriend local families and kind of try to blend in and, and just uh be very below the radar paid with everything in cash and um you know he also liked to visit gun shows and they loved animals. And, and uh, that was really uh, something that was um, a lot of people reported that had met them, that they, they loved pets, 
They spent a lot of time with pets. They befriended families that had pets. And uh, that contributed to their undoing in the end. So when he would move into a, a, a place, neighbors just thought that it was a couple of retirees in their 70s. That's right. And they went under uh, a couple of different aliases while they were traveling together. The first alias uh, they had together was uh, Tom and Helen Baxter. And the uh, family that they, they befriended in the bayou in Louisiana would call them Uncle Tom and, uh, and Aunt Helen. And this elderly couple, uh, you know, showered them with gifts and money. This was a family that was, uh, you know, uh, in, living in a rural area, didn't have a lot to begin with, and certainly, uh, you know, took this elderly couple in with, with open arms. And when um, Bulger and Greg got to Southern California, they had changed their names to Charles and Carol Gasco. And that's how they lived uh, in Santa Monica for several years. And, you know, they told their uh, neighbors that, they were a retired couple from Chicago, but people that you know grew up in the Chicago area uh, believed that they you know clearly didn't have a Chicago accent. So there was a mystery around them from the very beginning. People were wondering exactly who they were and why they were there. Okay, and what were the early efforts like to find uh, Whitey Bulger? So in the beginning, when they went on the run. Um, you know, there was a, a faction of corrupt FBI agents that were still being rooted out. Um, one of them, a man named John Connolly, who uh, turned out to be the person who had given Whitey Bulger the tip that the indictment was coming that allowed him to go on the run. So in those early days, a lot of crucial mistakes were made uh, that allowed uh, Bulger and originally Teresa Stanley to uh, get away and, and, and elude capture. Um, when Whitey Bulger brought Teresa Stanley back, there was a huge missed opportunity by law enforcement where they, they took their time in uh, re-interviewing re Teresa Stanley when she returned. Um, they waited months before they actually talked to her. And by that time, uh, Bulger was long gone with Catherine Gregg. So again, you know, Bulger was a, a student of how to uh, commit crimes and be a, be a crime boss, but he was an expert at being a fugitive. And um, he had plenty of help from within the law enforcement ranks in those early couple of years. Um, and he also had help from back here in Boston from uh, one of his top lieutenants, a guy named Kevin Weeks. And Kevin Weeks um, would meet Whitey Bulger out in the Midwest and uh, provide him with fake IDs. And, uh, and get, he was also constantly in contact with him, giving him information um, about, about the investigation. So he's not totally on his own. He has somebody kind of keeping him up to date on how the investigation's going. Yeah. And it was a, a, you know, his surrogate son, Kevin Weeks back in Boston, who was uh, feeding him information and they would meet whether it was Chicago or New York city uh, for a very short period of time, just for Bulger to get kind of a lay of the land uh, back in Boston. But even in those early days, there were still FBI agents that were committed and dedicated to tracking him down. There's one, uh, you know, great, moment in our book, Hunting Whitey, where one of the FBI agents uh, tracks down one of Whitey Bulger's getaway cars and finds it in a driveway in Selden, New York, takes the vehicle apart and finds a receipt. And because of that receipt, the FBI then was hot on Bulger's trail, ultimately ended up in Grand Isle um, just uh, after Bulger had fled, uh, because Bulger, again, was getting his own information that his first alias, Tom Baxter, had been given up by his ex-girlfriend, Teresa Stanley. So there's a great cat and mouse game that's played 
for many years in the Bulger case uh, before ultimately uh, a new group of agents comes in and really flips the case completely on its head. Yeah, so you talk about this cat and mouse game and, and a lot of missed opportunities, um, some missteps. But one thing I thought that was really interesting is where the whole investigation changes as a result of September 11th. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so uh, Whitey Bulger was the number two uh, most wanted man on the FBI's uh, list of most wanted criminals. Number one was Osama bin Laden. And uh, as, as we explained earlier, Bulger had access to large amounts of cash. The estimates have been, you know, five to 10 million, if not more. And uh, he had traveled out of the country many times before uh, he went on the run. And the theory among law enforcement is that he, and, that he stashed money in cash boxes around, around the world. Um, there is uh, information that he had one in England, possibly Ireland, maybe Italy, perhaps some other locations as well. Uh, after 9-11, um, you know, Homeland Security was created and getting in and out of the country became much more burdensome and much more risky, especially for um, people whose uh, documents are not in order. Whitey Bulger had nothing but fake IDs to get in and out of the country. So once 9-11 happened, um, it really made it hard for him to leave the country. Uh, we don't believe that he ever did leave the country when he was on, on, on the run. Um, we talk about that in the book. Um, where he, you know, he tells some friends that, you know, they were looking from all over the world and he joked about it. He thought it was funny. Um, the other thing that happened after 9-11 was uh, the federal government, the Department of Justice and the FBI changed its focus. Before that, they were focused on the war on drugs, organized crime and, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, after 9-11, obviously, all the resources in the federal uh, law enforcement community went into uh, terrorism. And that really reduced the focus on finding a guy like Whitey Bulger to the point where the Bulger task force was down to only a couple of officers for quite a long period of time. Um, we, we talked earlier about this Robin Hood um, mythos that, that Bulger constructed around himself. Um, but it's about this time is, when he's on the run that you guys write about how that mythos was kind of shattered for the people in Boston. How did that occur? It, it happened in a couple of different, very jarring ways. Um, uh, the, the first uh, uh, chink in Bulger's armor, so to speak, was the revelation that Bulger had been a longtime informant for the FBI. And everybody that who you know believed that Bulger was the stand-up, James Cagney type of gentleman gangster, you know, was completely knocked off their access when they realized that Bulger had been ratting out his friends and his enemies for so long. But uh, what really brought it home were uh, the dark secrets of Bulger's criminal past that had been unearthed uh, from these death pits that were dug all over Boston. And within these death pits were several of Whitey Bulger's victims, both men and women. So again, the idea that Bulger was just uh, the king of the rackets and a uh, kind of a rock and tour gentleman gangster had been destroyed at that point because, you know, his handiwork you know, the, the uh, rotting remains of two young women were, were unearthed and uh, the remains were returned to their families. And uh, you can imagine the horrific uh, response, um, you know, the families had with this, but also everybody in and around Boston at the time. Now, as the task force tries to locate his whereabouts and such, were, were they getting much cooperation from Bulger's family? Were there any leads there that they could pursue? 
No, and uh, that that was a, a big part of the fugitive hunt, and it was a source of great frustration for the FBI and the other law enforcement agencies that were looking for Whitey Bulger. They they tried to interview his family many many times. Uh, they tried to run leads by them uh, routinely, and they were stonewalled at every step to the point where if an FBI agent would visit uh, his brother, Billy Bulger, who was one of the most powerful politicians in Massachusetts at the time, um, Bulger would, would politely decline, and they'd get a call back uh, from, from Bul uh, the Bulger family lawyer, a guy named Tom Kiley, and that happened over and over throughout the life of the investigation. So the, the, the trail's largely gone cold, but the, the big turning point in your book occurs in 2008 when, when two agents get assigned to the case. Um, who were Noreen Gleason and, and Tommy McDonald? Who were they and, and what did they bring to the investigation? Yeah, Noreen Gleason was uh, um, an FBI agent that uh, uh, worked in the uh, um, anti-gang task force in New York City. And she was elevated in her position uh, to arrive in Boston to be basically the second agent in charge of the office. And um, all of the uh, agents that had come before her and her boss, Warren Bamford, the special agent in charge of the office, they always played, paid lip service to the idea that, you know, they had one priority, which was to find Whitey Bulger. And I, of course, that never happened. It's been more than a decade since Bulger had fled justice. So finally, Noreen uh, gets the job and she walks into her boss's office and she says, do you really want to find him? And Bamford says, yes, yes, uh, we, we really do. So uh, Gleason says, okay, well, the gloves have to come off. And that meant that Gleason would start to recruit some of the best fugitive hunters from other offices from around the country to join in the fight. You mentioned Tommy McDonald. Tommy McDonald was a fugitive hunter out of New York City whom Gleason had worked with. Another uh, agent named Phil Torsney was also a, a real manhunter out of the Cleveland office. So here are two guys that are dropped into Boston to really start the reinvestigation all over again. And Noreen and another agent named Rich Tehan, you know, they, they come up to the, with the conclusion that maybe we're looking for the wrong person here. For over a decade, we've, we've been looking for an elderly white man with a ball cap and sunglasses. Now, you can spot probably five of those guys uh, walking in your neighborhood supermarket today. However, um, the onus should not be on Bulger, but instead, let's put the onus on the girlfriend, Captain Greg, because up to that point, there had been very uh, crude satellite images of her and not a really good uh, uh, identification of uh, who she was and where she could be. So uh, when they started to put the focus on Catherine, that's when the uh, entire case broke wide open. And they were able to do it by finding um, photographs that Catherine had taken of her uh, prior to some uh, plastic surgery procedures that she had undergone in Boston. So for the first time, they had very clear photographs of Catherine Gregg herself. And uh, Rich Tian from the FBI decides to create uh, their own public service announcement. The FBI had never done that before. And by doing so, and by plastering her face all over those PSAs, it was only a matter of time before uh, they found Whitey Bulger. So she's the angle that lets them finally close in on him. That's right. And, and, and he knew it. But at the, at the end of that relationship, as they were, you know, uh, growing old together, Whitey was really depending more so on Catherine than she was depending 
on him. Catherine would do all of the grocery shopping. Catherine would keep their home. You know, Whitey Bulger stayed inside um, the two-bedroom apartment in Santa Monica, a place that Dave Wedge and I were the only journalists who have ever gotten access to uh, that apartment. And when you go in there, you realize how small it is, what a, what a difficult situation it must have been for Bulger to stay hidden for so long. But uh, he knew that ultimately, you know, his girlfriend, and uh, as Dave mentioned, her love of animals would uh, be the thing that um, gave them up. So the last thing I'll ask you guys, while he's on the run um, for 16 years, it, is he living life and enjoying freedom or is he kind of in his own prison? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really the latter. Uh, you know, Whitey Bulger, uh, ironically, was, you know, on the run and, and, and you know, supposedly free a free man, unlike all the other folks that were indicted with him, all the guys that he committed crimes with and murders with for, for decades. But he was living in this small apartment in Santa Monica, uh, just less than a mile from the local police station. And he was very paranoid. He was cooped up in that um, apartment and he would, he would sit out on the, on the, in the front window with binoculars waiting and waiting and waiting to see if someone was going to ambush him. And uh, a lot of people that we spoke to, uh, for this book, talked about how they would see him up there with the binoculars all the time, wondering when it was, you know, his time for either uh, one of his enemies to come get him or or law enforcement. So definitely something that would be nerve wracking all the time. Yeah, he had constantly looked over his shoulder, and uh, and for good reason. Uh, he knew at at one point uh, the FBI or some law enforcement agency would come hunting him down. But he was also cavalier at times and was willing to gamble with his own freedom. There's an episode in that early section of the book where Whitey Bulger uh, goes to watch a screening of The Departed starring Jack Nicholson, which is a fictionalized version of his own life of crime in San Diego. And unbeknownst to Whitey Bulger is a, uh, a police officer sitting four rows behind him and almost caught him that day. So, you know, as Bulger was uh, certainly in, con in control of his own fugitive status, there were times that he stepped out of that role uh, for his own enjoyment. All right, gentlemen. Well, the title of the book, again, is Hunting Whitey, the inside story of the capture and killing of America's most wanted crime boss. Um, there is a lot more in here talking about how he was finally apprehended, um, the um, sen sensational trial that he has, uh, and ultimately his murder in 2018. Um, if someone wants to read about that and learn more, uh, where can they go to get a copy of the book? So the, the book, the book's available everywhere the books are sold, uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, during this, uh, you know, pandemic in states where things are still closed. Those are the best places online. But, um, you know, we'd encourage your listeners to get to the local uh, independent bookstore and, and uh, it should be available everywhere. OK. And do you guys have a, a website or anything like that? Well, we can, uh, uh, you can get us at uh, fortpointmedia.com, and that's our production company, F-O-R-T-M-E-D-I-A.com. And anybody that has questions or inquiries can uh, reach us there. We're pretty responsive to all. Okay, excellent. Well, uh, Casey Sherman, uh, Dave Wedge, thank you guys so much for taking the time to tell us about this story. Thank you. Well, thank you for listening to this episode, and thank you so much for being a supporter of the podcast. Um, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge uh, about their book, Hunting Whitey, 
the inside story of the capture and killing of America's most wanted crime boss. Uh, we're not a true crime podcast, but when we do venture into true crime, it's always a very interesting episode, uh, and today's was no different. Uh, if you want to learn more about the Whitey Bulger story and you want to pick up a copy of Hunting Whitey, uh, if you scroll on your phone to uh, the description of this episode on your podcast app, whether that's uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever, uh, you will find a link to IndieBound.org and uh, they will connect you to a local bookseller in your area where you can pick up a copy of Hunting Whitey. Um, as, uh, I've been plugging, as I've been plugging quite a bit lately, um, try to support your independent bookseller as, as, as much as they can. Those bookstores um, definitely need our help right now as, as much as possible. And one thing I haven't mentioned in a little while, uh, this show is part of a broader podcast network called Straight Up Strange Productions. Uh, if you scroll a little bit further in your podcast description, uh, you'll find a link to the network page, uh, and you can find all sorts of really excellent podcasts on a myriad of subjects. Uh, definitely check them out if you get the chance. All right, that is it for today's episode. Uh, I will see you back here at the beginning of August. We will be interviewing historian and author Eric J. Dolan, who has been on the podcast before. If you want to go back into the archives and look up the episode Black Flags and Blue Waters, you can listen to the last time he was on the show last summer talking about his book on piracy. But he will be joining us again to talk about his newest book, A Furious Sky on the History of Hurricanes in America. And I hope I'll see you again then. This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.